In our first episode on Henry IV Part 1, we introduced Prince Hal's intention to redeem the time. This idea refers in particular to his plan to cast off loose living and gain glory by defeating his rival. But redeeming the time can have a more expansive reference as well, having to do with making your own sense and shape and personal meaning out of the historical time into which we're all born. In this episode, we explore these complex dimensions of Hal's plans and relationships. Ewan Fernie, professor at the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham and director of the Everything to Everybody project, guides our discussion. Hal begins the play by promising to redeem the time. The most influential reading of the play is, in, of recent times, is probably Stephen Greenblatt's in, Invisible Bullets. And it's a brilliant reading which suggests that the play is really about statecraft and how states stimulate resistance and even rebellion in order to sort of fold them back into their own authority. It's a very sophisticated reading and perhaps in today's world where the ruses of power and the danger of power and is so salient, it you know, seems all the more important to be that analytical about how a power works. But older readings tended to credit Hal a bit more. They credited his good intentions a bit more. The Greenblatt reading, in some ways, is an analysis of means, rather it's less interested in ends. Hal's means can seem manipulative, even Machiavellian, in their political calculatedness. He befriends commoners and plans to exploit that friendship to enhance his own political prestige, to make his transformation into a proper royal all the more powerful. And even before that transformation, some of the jokes he plays on his less clever companions are cruel. On the other hand, his ends aren't ignoble. He wishes to pay his debt and become the most effective leader he can be. He also has a more intelligent and imaginative sense of what makes an effective leader than his father gives him credit for, and his time in Eastcheap contributes to that. Because the play, in a sense, gives us apparent opposites, it's easy just to accept those and to choose one or the other, Where, and to, to read Hal as, as either utterly Machiavellian or as the ideal king, but it's just messier than that. I think he, he means to be a good son to his father. He also can't help himself from participating in the pleasures and and the dissipation and even the you know sinfulness of, of Eastcheap. I, I think Hal is, is partly concerned to acquire useful experience as he you know contemplates his destiny as a great he hopes and so it will prove to be English English king. He's also setting up a tremendous coup de théâtre whereby he'll show his glittering, his word difference from the sordid milieu and man with which he's deliberately associated. Shameless strategizing, it starts with that, and PR. And, you know, also in the mix is this intention to do a good job, this really sort of clever boy's idea that, that maybe just doing your lessons at court aren't the way to be king of a whole nation, that, that actually to get to know its people, to get to know its pleasures might be a way to govern. King Henry wants Hal to execute his royal responsibilities in a more straightforward way. 
He wants Hal to model himself on him. The play presents a number of models whose example Hal might imitate, and Henry views political success as a matter of following one kind of model and avoiding another. He tells Hal, For all the world, as thou art to this hour, was Richard then, and even as I was then is Percy now. Henry secured the crown from Richard by winning men's good opinion. Hotspur, too, has spent his life winning never-dying honour. But Richard, says Henry, was a companion to the common streets and lost his power to impress the people. Henry sees Hal as following that same path, Thou hast lost thy princely privilege with vile participation. Henry wishes Hal would change course and instead imitate himself and Hotspur. Hotspur is the most obvious model for Hal to follow. The other model the play offers is Falstaff. It may seem like the young prince and the reckless old man have little in common, but Falstaff does influence Hal as we realise when we hear Hal imitating his language and style of speaking. Richard II, the predecessor play to Henry IV, was written entirely in formal poetic verse. That verse is still the language of court and official exchanges in Henry IV, but the tavern scenes are dominated by exuberant, overflowing prose, coming from or inspired by Falstaff. Falstaff is... is he is a great speaker. He has a, a lyrical vein. He says, please don't describe us as, as thieves, call us rather Diana's foresters, gentlemen of the shade, minions of the moon. He tells outrageous stories about himself. Whenever Falstaff talks, you know you're going to be entertained. You know the world's going to be refreshed and reinvented. And he does touch that vein of creativity off in others and no one more than, than Hal. So the play begins with Hal, Henry V-to-be, saying, What a devil hast thou to do with the time of day, unless hours were cups of sack, minutes capons, and clocks the tongues of boards, and dials the signs of leaping houses, and the blessed sun himself, a fair hot wench in flame-coloured taffeta. I see no reason why thou should be so superfluous to demand the time of day. I mean, it's an amazingly vital speech. It's full of life and it's a bit reckless. It's also full of sex and drinking and whoremongering and so forth. This is the heir apparent of just just propelled into this extraordinary, hilarious, sort of delighted life by the fat man he's talking to. But Hal's language isn't the only thing that Falstaff wants to influence. Falstaff at least semi-seriously expects Hal to grant protection to his kind of lawlessness when Hal becomes king. I prithee, sweet wag, he says, shall there be gallows standing in England when thou art king? Do not thou, when thou art king, hang a thief. Hal might find this influence hard to resist, all that is free and unrestrained and joyful about life seems to be embodied in the fat knight. He's characterised always as, as fat. And I, there's, 
that's a serious and interesting thing in the play. The first Shakespeare Jubilee in 1769 culminates in the birth of Falstaff from Shakespeare's head. He's identified with a world where all pleasures abound. And there's this kind of pagan refrain, so Falstaff will never decline and his rain and his rivers are wine and away with all sorrow and care. So Falstaff represents the fullness of experience, the abundance, the richness of life. Stephen Greenblatt calls Falstaff a dream of superabundance, which again, a lovely phrase. So what I'm invoking here is a, a kind of mythical vitality that, that Falstaff seems to have in our culture. Falstaff's abundant, capacious quality makes it all the more startling when Hal promises to cast him off. During their game in the tavern, they each play the role of King Henry. Falstaff stands in for Hal's real father, much as he's been doing all along. Then Hal, the pretend wastrel prince, plays the role of king he will really become. Falstaff pleads... Banish not Falstaff by Harry's company. Banish Plump Jack and banish all the world. And Hal replies, I do, I will. It shows that both Falstaff and Hal have, have an extraordinary dramatic claim and power. Falstaff says to him, look, if you banish me, you're going to banish all the extensiveness, all the embodiment, all the pleasure of the universe, everything. Banish Plump Jack and banish all the world. He whips out that glittering sword and he says, I do, I will. He doesn't deny that. He, he accepts that he'll be banishing all the world and he says, and watch me do it. And so you, you get a sense of the power of his intention and will there. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is to evoke both the pathos and power of Falstaff and the pathos and power of Hal. Shakespeare is giving both claims their full due. He's really giving us something to think through and, and respond to ourselves. Hal makes it clear that he isn't simply going to follow Falstaff's lead. It's a difficult and shocking declaration because this scene insists so strongly on all that Falstaff has to offer, seemingly all the exuberance and pleasure of the world. It's also a scene that reduces Hal's other possible models to ridicule. Both Hal and Falstaff mimic King Henry, and the scene begins with Hal doing a mocking imitation of Hotspur. He that kills me some six or seven dozen of Scots at a breakfast washes his hands and says to his wife, Fie upon this quiet life, I want work. But directly after this scene, news breaks of the rebellion and we see what is actually lacking in Falstaff's apparent capaciousness and what in Hotspur might be worth imitating seriously. Just before the battle, Falstaff speaks about that quality that Hotspur values above all, honour. What is honour? A word. Who hath it? He that died on Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Oh, none of it. He later says, Give me life, which, if I can save, so, 
If not, honour comes unlooked for. We're used to hearing Falstaff overturn conventional values and often it feels liberating. But here, that overturning is played in a far more sinister key. He says honour isn't real, it's nothing, so let's just save ourselves. It's an impediment to uh, a fully opportunistic life. Falstaff is often associated with with life, but actually life isn't just subsistence. It's also honour and love and fidelity and all these other things that we aspire to. And, And to that extent, he's smaller than himself here. There are times when any of us would wish to be free of the responsibility to honour, but would you want the whole play to do without it? Falstaff at times represents that, that collective life, but at other times we see his limits, and that also might be part of the interest of the, the play, this comprehensive figure that isn't altogether comprehensive. The Battle of Shrewsbury reveals, perhaps for the first time, the limitations of Falstaff's claim to be all the world. His desire for money, which plays as comical when he refuses to pay his tavern bills, takes a more sinister turn when he accepts bribes to let richer, able-bodied soldiers avoid enlistment and presses poor men into service with a careless acknowledgement that they're all going to die. They'll fill a pit as well as better, he says. If he stands for life, He also stands, at times, for his own life and nothing else. In this, he's the utter opposite of Hotspur. Falstaff's speech about honour, it's completely contrasted in the play by Hotspur, who has an explosively straightforward devotion to honour. Neither of them is completely right, it seems to me, that, that, uh, that Hotspur is sacrificing too much of life. On the other hand, it has a kind of innocence and purity in, in the play as having just just the, the life of a single true-minded energetic idea he's true to that and he lives it and he's faithful to it there's a sort of innocence about the way he attempts to live up to a specific ha- ideal however flawed and he gives his life for it in the end and he would give it a, day after day after day the ideal might not be admirable but his commitment his commitment and his energy is The battle reveals Hotspur's strengths as it reveals Falstaff's limits. Hotspur's devotion to honour, which he has proclaimed so often in words, is proved to be absolutely genuine in action. Even when their chances of victory drop because their supporting troops cannot come, Hotspur is no less enthusiastic about the battle. And if we live, we live to tread on kings. If die, brave death when princes die with us. For him, it's almost as if it doesn't matter whether one lives or dies, only that one does so bravely. I think his appeal is the of, of a kind of blazing clarity in a complex world, and I think that's also his great flaw. He's ill-adapted to that world in the end. And that's maybe an important point because Hal, there's a big question mark over him. I mean, is, is, is he ill-adapted to his own royalty? Is he incapable of his own destiny? He isn't because the world is, is not just a chivalric adventure story world. It's a complex political, psychological, maybe even spiritual world. And actually he's much better fitted to 
navigate and negotiate that than Hotspur is. As it shows the strengths and limits of his models, the battle also shows that Hal recognises those strengths and limits. Hal isn't simply going to imitate any one model. Instead, he'll try to adopt aspects of all of them in a more informed, complex mode of life that's uniquely his own. Hotspur is a version, he's on the one hand an ideal version of Hal and on the other hand not so much. He exemplifies a virtue which Hal aspires to but Hal also aspires to be much more than that. He wants to, to carry with him what he's learned from, from Falstaff and his, his relationship with his father and so forth. He's much broader but he says he'll crop all those budding honours on Hotspur's crest to make a garland for his own. It's quite a chilling thing. Hal's saying almost that he's delegated some of his life and achievements to Hotspur. You do that, and once you've done it, I'll just have it all back. That's quite an extraordinary instrumental thing to say. At the same time, there's a kind of affective identification which becomes more and more intense. Hal hasn't shown himself to be Hotspur's equal to this point, and he meets him bravely and defiantly and Hal is so courteous to after Hotspur's death as I think to some extent does redeem the time. At the very beginning of the play Hal said to us look this is what I'm doing I'm going to redeem the time I'm going to defeat Hotspur I'm going to cast off Falstaff and then at this point here he is and he's done it he's killed Hotspur many people thought including his own father thought he couldn't do it he's done it it's done right on time and then he turns around and there's Falstaff. So that's done too. So it's an extraordinary moment of stepping into your own ego ideal. And then Falstaff riseth up. Hal sees Falstaff seemingly dead alongside Hotspur. But when he leaves, Falstaff gets up. After the trick of faking his death, he decides to play another trick to claim that he killed Hotspur to gain a reward. I look to be either Earl or Duke, I can assure you, he tells Hal when they meet. Hal says, why, Percy, I killed myself. But when Falstaff doubles down on his story, Hal accepts it. He says, if a lie may do thee grace, I'll gild it with the happiest terms I have. He's done exactly what he said he was going to do, and then Falstaff gets up. But what's really interesting and, and delightful, I think, is he's delighted. It shows real grace, because he could say, this isn't my plan, and instead of he has the flexibility of spirit to welcome it. He both wants to redeem the time, and he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to have to take up his historical burden and become Henry V. He's delighted by Falstaff's resistance. It means that the game is still on. In Hotspur's death, the play respects what was best in his life. His honourable ideals, his unswaying, indomitable spirit. And Falstaff's surprise return to life symbolises all that is irresistible about him. His resistance to official codes and his adaptable, irrepressible spirit. Hal incorporates elements of both. 
When Falstaff thwarts Howe's plan to secure his honour with a public defeat of Hotspur, Howe shows his own Falstaffian flexibility. He gives up that plan to grace Falstaff's lie, but he doesn't give up on honour. He finds a different way to display it. Hotspur's comrade Douglas was captured in battle. In front of the king and the English lords, Hal performs an act of chivalrous generosity and asks that Douglas be freed. In this act, he subtly aligns himself with the valiant Hotspur, who also once captured and freed Douglas. He also displays his generosity by sharing this act with his brother. Brother John of Lancaster, to you this honourable bounty shall belong. Go to the Douglas and deliver him ransomless and free. When Hal said his private words over Hotspur's body, he called those rites a courtesy. Now, John uses the same word to describe Hal's public act. I thank your grace for this high courtesy, he says. Earlier, Hal had determined to gain honour by letting others gain it and then taking it from them. All the budding honours on thy crest I'll crop to make a garland for my head, he told Hotspur. But here he shows an expanded, more imaginative sense of the opportunities a ruler possesses. For instance, to enhance his own honour by giving an honourable bounty away, to build himself up by building up others. This sense will serve him well in his destined role as King Henry V, who rallies his men before battle by addressing them as we band of brothers. But this play does not end with him taking on that role. Falstaff, the rebels and King Henry himself are all still here, waiting to play out the next chapter of history. So, for now, Hal can keep experimenting with different ways of shaping his story and redeeming the time. The main character told us he was going to redeem the time and become the man who will be the great Henry V. And he gets that close to it right at the end and then it doesn't happen. We know there's unfinished business. But what's so beautiful about the play is that instead of feeling angrily frustrated by that, that's a wonderful extension of life, of holiday, of possibility. And the real serious business of stepping up to your historical responsibility can be put off. I think Henry IV one asks some of the really big, big questions of history and of more intimate human life such as we all lead where do we really exist do you most exist in your recordable achievements or do you actually exist in your private fantasies and relationships it asks how you succeed what it will cost you it asks how you give a life that's destined to die and which is compromised as all our lives are by the history that you know we're born into how do you manage to give that your own shape and meaning how does Hal manage to put his own shine on becoming Henry V even though that's always waiting for him that destiny his intentions are defeated and he realizes that's the best thing how and he might be asking us about our own inheritance how how far we can slip that noose or whether we're simply performing the same script and that might take us back to creativity how do you exceed 
your scripted destiny? How do you change the script of history? The question is, why couldn't history be a work of art? Why can't we make history a work of art? If art is the truest thing, then we can aspire. We need to carry all of this vitality into history. Hal wants to make his historically determined life into a story, to create surprise and delight with his planned transformation, which he describes in aesthetic terms. Like bright metal on sullen ground, my reformation glittering o'er my fault shall show more goodly and attract more eyes. For Professor Fernie, redeeming the time may be an artistic or spiritual framework to hold in our minds as we confront the chaos of our own historical moment, whether it be disease or civil strife or injustice, and try to transform it into something more beautiful. I remember being very struck by the, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. He says that Hal invests his intention in a kind of in a divine idea, really. He takes Hal's, Hal's intention to redeem the time really seriously. He sees Hal as shut in to an intention which is actually bigger than the world. It's expanding, it's reforming, it's powerful. What if you do, as we have not recently, take Hal a bit more seriously, see it a bit more positively? And I think at the very least, the play does want us to entertain that possibility that redeeming the time, there's a poetry in that idea and a religious idealism that I think must at least partly appeal to us. And that seems a really pertinent thought after COVID-19 and in the midst of Black Lives Matter. How do you redeem the time? All the errors and difficulties um, and blemishes of history. How do we redeem history? In our next episode, we'll look closely at how Hal speaks about and navigates his transformation to ask how far he succeeds with his own attempts at redemption. Redemption.